0: On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Andrew Hollingsworth about Wolfhart Pannenberg. We cover topics like who is Pannenberg? What were his major theological contributions? How can he serve the local church and the local church pastor as an intellectual partner? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can email us at contact at LondonLyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, though not necessarily always analytic, Baptist, or confessional with our listeners, we welcome everybody. We think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we hope to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly about issues, all issues that relate to God, which I think is probably everything, so we'll limit it and say mostly theological stuff, but with some philosophy and theology sprinkled in philosophy and history sprinkled in, uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak,
1: and I'm your other host, Brandon Askew.
0: Yeah. And today I'm really excited to introduce to you a, a new friend of mine, Andrew, Dr. Andrew Hollingsworth. Um, he, we're going to talk to him about Wolfhart Pannenberg. I think, you know, on the show, we, we try to get a lot of different ideas and topics going on here to discuss things, to get our, get our brains thinking about things. And I think Pandenberg is probably one of those guys that a lot of our listeners may have no idea who he is. Uh, some may be familiar with him, but vaguely familiar. So I, I, I would guess the demographic of our show is more Baptist than not, though we have a lot of different people with different backgrounds and different, you know, uh, denominational affiliations and everything. I think most of them are Baptists. And I don't know how much Pannenberg has been introduced to them. Uh, I know myself, I didn't really know anything about Pannenberg um, probably until a few years ago. One of my uh, wife's best friends, I just found out this by happenstance. I was over; We were over at their house or actually it was her parents' house. And I guess her dad um, studied under Pannenberg for his PhD. Uh, and so he gave me a couple of Pannenberg books and everything. So that was kind of my little introduction to him. Uh, But I would guess most people aren't familiar with him, but he seems like an extremely important thinker, uh, someone who can help us to think deeply and clearly about God and all things relation to God. So I'm looking forward to talking to you because you seem to be an expert on him. So uh, Andrew, why don't you, before we jump into Pannenberg, maybe just give us Thirty to sixty second introduction on who you are for those who may not be familiar with you, and then why you got interested in Pannenberg.
2: Sure, uh, yeah, my name is Andrew Hollingsworth. Um, I, I did my bachelor's at Mississippi College, uh, focusing in biblical languages there. Before I came to seminary, uh, where I did an M.A. in theology with a concentration in philosophy of religion, focusing on the hermeneutic philosophy of Hans Georg Gadamer, and then I did a Ph.D. in systematic theology, and I wrote my dissertation actually on Umberto Eco. Uh, who is actually a, a semiotician and not a theologian at all. And I was kind of developing a, a new, a semi, I call it a semiotic model for theology. But my interest in, in, in Pannenberg, actually, Pannenberg or Pannenberg either is fine. Um, actually, it, it started uh, in at the very tail end of my, my master's work. Um, because, again, I was writing on Hans-Georg Gadamer. And uh, his hermeneutic philosophy, and I was looking at insights uh, from his hermeneutic philosophy, and saying, "Oh, this actually has a striking parallel with what we understand that we call Christian discipleship." So, kind of in my thesis, exploring like, "Hey, hey, like discipleship itself is a hermeneutic phenomenon in development." And in studying Gadamer, uh, probably the, the evangelical leader on Gadamer was Anthony Thistleton. So, I was reading a lot of Anthony Thistleton, a lot of. Uh, evangelicals will talk about hermeneutic philosophy for evangelicals as pre and post Thistleton sometimes. Well, Thistleton, I'd started reading his hermeneutics of doctrine as well as I was revisiting his book, Two Horizons. And I noticed this name kept popping up ad nauseum. And it was Wolfhart Pannenberg. And he kept correlating him to hermeneutic theology. And I'm like, oh, I like hermeneutics and theology. Let me look into this guy. What I found was some of the most intellectually robust and intellectually one of the most intellectual approaches to Christian theology. This was a theologian who he engages the the history and studies of philosophy and science, not as much as he does the history of theology and, and biblical studies, but not much less. I mean, you don't get one without him doing that. He's this very interdisciplinary approach to theology. Like here's a guy when he talks about creation, he does spend about as much time talking about evolutionary theory, um, you know, uh, f- uh, cosmo- cosmological theory and physics, uh, the principle he, he, then he talks about all kinds of philosophical discussions about causation and about how, about how no things can come from nothing and, and the such. It's just a very robust theology. And, um, yeah, that was that was why I found this fascinating. And here's a guy who just seemed to have and not just discussing and familiar with it, but just this command of all of this literature and all of these different disciplines. It was it was really mind-blowing And at first it was a little daunting. I was like, yeah. "Oh my goodness, do I really need to understand clinical psychology before I can think <laughs> about what the Bible says a human being is?"
0: Yeah.
2: And mm-hmm. but uh yeah, it's just been he's just been a thinker that the more and more I read his work. The more I grow from it, the more critical I become at times of it. But as I've I've never read a book from Ponenberg that I did not grow in some sense from.
1: It's hmm. good stuff. Mm-hmm. So, before we dive a little more deeply into his theological contributions, why don't we just take a moment to uh, for people like me who know next to nothing about him? Um, on, just take a few minutes to give us uh, a biographical sketch about who he is and then we'll talk more about his theology.
2: Sure thing uh, as I'm jumping into that, you made the comment that a lot of uh, a lot of Baptist may not have known it, known of him fascinatingly enough, four very well-known Baptist theologians actually under at some point in their terms studied under him mm-hmm. um, William Lane Craig did his second PhD under a yep. technical to D The under Ponenberg. Uh, Stan, the late Stanley Grins, did his PhD under Ponenberg. Roger Olson spent a couple of terms under Ponenberg, And Millard Erickson did his post-doctorate under Pönenberg. Okay, mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, if that, you look that's the, the only thing I know about Pönenberg is that he endorsed his endorsement is on the back of Erickson's systematology. <laughs> that's about <laughs> it. And I've seen his name in some footnotes. That's about it. That's all I got. So. <laughs> that's
2: right. That's right. So, real quick, uh, Ponenberg, He was born 1928 in Stett, Germany. That area now belongs to Poland. Uh, He was baptized as a child, but his family was not a religious family at all. Um, He grew up taking lots of music lessons. He's very musically inclined. And early on, his family kind of noticed that their child um, just had this intellectual gifting. Um, But again, his family was an intellectually oriented family. At the age of 16, he discovered his first book of philosophy. It was Nietzsche's The Birth of Tragedy. And by the age by, before he turned 17, if I, if I remember reading correctly from his autobiographical essay, he had read everything Nietzsche had written wow. before he turned 17. <laughs> so he was very, very well nourished. Uh, believe it or not, if you think that's crazy. In his upper teens, before he turns 21, he's already read all of the works of Marx, <sighs> which was a lot. Um, he was just this avid reader. Ponenberg did not grow up in a religious family. He grew up in what was essentially an atheistic home. But there was this one day on January 6th of 1945. He's walking home from school one day. And it was a couple of hours walk. It was not a short walk. Um, and this is where he what he describes, he calls it his light experience, which was his initial conversion to the an openness to to uh things spiritual. And I'm actually just gonna read this to you from his own words because I find I almost get chills when I read it. <laughs> um He says, on the 6th of January, 1945, while I was walking back home from school, instead of using the train, a somewhat lengthy walk of several hours, an extraordinary event occurred in which I found myself absorbed into the light of the setting sun, and for one eternal moment, dissolved in the light surrounding me. When I became aware again of my finite existence, I did not know what had happened, but certainly knew that it was the most important event of my life. I spent many years afterwards to find out what it meant to me. He tells the story a little bit differently elsewhere. He says, I had a visionary experience of a great light, not only surrounding me, but absorbing me for an indefinite time. I did not hear any words, but it was a metaphysical awakening that prompted me to search for its meaning regarding my life during the following years while I experienced the end of the war. I don't know of any 16-year-old who talks about their experiences that way. (laughs) But that's his thing. And um, later on after that, he did not connect that with any particular religion, but there was something that happened that changed, that he became aware of his finiteness, which opened him up to to this idea of the infinite. Mm -hmm. He comes up to this idea of the infinite in a lot of his works, but it was actually later uh, after that. He, uh, he gets drafted. He gets to get sent to go to war for World War II. He's drafted against, pretty much against his will. Uh, he actually did not fight in the war. He, he lucked out. He got scabies, if you can call that lucking out. <laughs> but as he was prevented from going, he was sent back. The, I believe it was the hospital or the camp that he was at actually got taken over by the Allies, hmm. and he was actually a prisoner of war for a short time. Um, anyway, he eventually makes his way home and then gets to finish high school. Um, But it was during he had this German literature professor, I think he's the age of 17 at this point, who claimed to be a Christian, who's a Christian. And um, Ponenberg realized that this man did not fit the, the stereotypical mold of what a Christian looks like that Nietzsche had portrayed. So he starts to find that, well, hey, Nietzsche said that Christians are these very uptight, overly rigorous, moral people who have no fun. This guy seems to be enjoying all facets of life, yet he's a Christian maybe maybe Nietzsche got it wrong. Hmm. So Ponenberg continued to talk with him. He was mentored by this guy. Um, and he eventually would go off to university to study. And when he went to university, he enrolled as a philosophy major. Or sorry, no, a theology major. He had eventually found Christianity as a intellectually satisfying religion and had made his uh, what he calls his intellectual conversion there. So he goes off to university, and he, he begins to study philosophy as rigorous as theology. And he studies under, at different schools throughout uh, his career. Um, he studies at uh, Humboldt University, Gerdigan University. Um, he at one point goes off and studies at the University uh, uh, University of uh, Basel under Bart. Uh And then he completes um, his education, actually, uh, at Heidelberg under the supervision of a well-known theologian at the time named Edmund Schlink. Now, all, all of this is actually really important to Ponenberg. and it's going to help me explain some of his ideas later. While at Basel, his time under Barth was very important um, because Barth had not completed the church dogmatics at this time. I forget how many volumes he had, but Ponenberg had already read all of the volumes before he went hmm. to go study under Barth, and he found Barth's engagement with philosophy extremely dissatisfying. Hmm. And he found, particularly as a result, Bart's doctrine of revelation to be severely lacking.
0: Well, oh, that's my kind of guy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> he,
2: he, as much as that, he agreed. Pretty much, he says Bart is absolutely right that all knowledge of God must begin with revelation; that it has to be initiated by God. That was where the agreement with Bart on revelation stopped. Hmm. <laughs> that was that was that was essentially it. But he he finishes his doctoral degree under Edmund Schlink. He wrote on the uh, the doctrine of predestination and Duns SCOTUS. And then he he eventually did his habilitation script, which is a in Germany, they have to write a second dissertation they call it habilitation to be able to teach in the university. Okay, And he wrote that on the doctrine of analogy uh, in the medieval Christianity. He was ordained as a Lutheran minister. He ended up getting married. He actually attributes to his wife more credit than anybody else to his uh, success as a theologian um, that she pretty much uh, just helped keep, provide him the structure and the parameters of his life that enabled him to do what he did. Um, Philip Clayton talks about in an in interview or in an interview piece he wrote once that uh to show you an idea of how dedicated he was uh, on Monday through Friday from five a.m. to ten a.m. That was Ponnenberg's writing time every day, Monday through Friday, five a.m. to ten a.m. He wrote for those five hours, caught a train to the university, uh, at Munich, which is where he ended up teaching. He taught at several different universities, including was a visiting professor in the United States at several places, but he carried out the bulk of his career at Munich, which is where he retired in the 90s from. But uh, Ponderberg would catch a train in the university and he would kind of lecture on the material he had been writing and researching, essentially. Uh, he retired in the 90s, wrote one of the most important systematic theologies, in my opinion, of the 20th century. And uh, he eventually passed away. Uh, he, caught, he actually caught dementia late in his life. Hmm. And um, and he passed away in 2014, September 5th, actually.
0: Yeah, there's all sorts of interesting stuff in there. I think the, the dissertation on SCOTUS, I mean, that's that that's a, seems like a fascinating topic
1: to me in and of itself, as well as the stuff on the analogy. Did Just curious, if did, did Piper have any relationship to him at Munich?
2: Not to my knowledge on okay. Piper. I forget the guy he studied under, but he was a, a New Testament major. Mm-hmm. Ponnenberg was specifically a systematic theologian, professor of systematic theology. Okay. Yeah. Um, although a lot of his, although he was no, if you, when you read his work, you'll discover, especially in a systematic, he was no underdeveloped uh, student of the Bible. Uh, he knew not just, uh, not just the Bible, but he was very well educated in the history of, of higher criticism of those traditions. Like he was, yeah, he, he engages in a lot of his, especially his stuff on Christology. He is, he engages so much with just the, history of biblical scholarship specifically Mm. that in germany
0: yeah that's Mm -hmm. interesting so i guess when it comes to wolf art what would you say are his major theological contributions um what are the pieces that are that he is just i guess original in producing or maybe just really influential in producing
2: sure so um uh, I'll I give these out and no, there's there's probably more but I'll give four main ones that he uh, that aren't necessarily original to him but ones some are original but ones that he just really hammered and became very well known for. Um, first was his doc, the doctrine of Revelation and specifically his thesis of Revelation as history.
1: Hmm.
2: Now again for he had studied under Bart and Bart for Bart Revelation was just this um, divine encounter that happened with. Uh, between the individual and God. Yeah. It was a very subjective experience. Um, well, Ponenberg and then for Bart, that was kind of the launching place of all theology was in that revelationary revelatory moment. And um, Ponenberg was just very unsatisfied with that. He's like, you have given no, he, he's pretty much accused Bart of not giving any objective criteria that revelation happened. He said, you, you want me to take my word, your word on that. And that's just not good scientific practice. Hmm. And so Pannenberg says, no, we, we need to approach theology from a more robust intellectual scientific manner, and revelation would need to be something much more objective. And so Ponenberg instead puts forth this thesis with several other uh, young theologians at the time. They collaborated in a, in a volume Ponenberg edited by the same title, Revelation is History. And Pannenberg comes to this conclusion that history itself, universal history, is revelation. Uh, important to note here is in Germany, they have two different words for history, history and geschichte. Pannenberg is talking specifically about geschichte here. Uh, history is kind of like the, the academic practice or discipline of history, of doing history. Uh, geschichte refers to like just the, the story of the cosmos. History, Pannenberg actually ends up defining history as the story of God. Hmm. Um. So this is a very important idea because if history, because history itself reveals who God is. So this allows Pannenberg to say that the specific events of history reveal God. Uh, so uh, the exodus from Egypt, that's a historical event that reveals who God is. The resurrection of Jesus, that's a historical event that reveals who God is. So this idea that history itself is revelation. So therefore, for Pannenberg, if you want to know who God is, you have to... You have to perform the task of a historian. You have to then do his story to look back to see how God has revealed himself in geschicta, how God has revealed himself in history in these events. Um, and so that's probably one of the most famous things he became known for. Uh, and this is also an area where he and, and us evangelicals are going to really part ways on to some extent. While we would agree Yes, God obviously reveals himself in history. God does reveal himself in the call of Abraham, the exodus from Egypt, the resurrection of Jesus, the crucifixion. We would also say that the Bible mm. reveals who God is, that the Bible is his word. That's also a form of God's self-revelation or self-communication. Yeah. Ponenberg would say that's not true. Ponenberg says, no, the Bible is a historically reliable witness to revelation. Mm. So a similar view to Bart's, mm. but... Yet still different because for Bart, the Bible becomes a medium of revelation insofar that God reveals himself to the reader through reading scripture. Ponenberg would say the Bible reveals who God is insofar as it points back and and provides an accurate representation of the historical events wherein God reveals himself.
1: So so we speak in categories of like special and natural revelation he wouldn't even use. They don't even fit with his thought at all, right?
2: No, so actually, and perhaps this is an oversimplification on my part, but actually I, I tended to, to, to explain it this way. For Barth, Revelation essentially becomes all special revelation mm-hmm. for Barth. Yeah, yeah. Well, for Pannenberg, it's like it all becomes general. Mm-hmm. Because okay. Pannenberg, and this is an area where I'm actually kind of sympathetic to, to on this, Pannenberg would say the resurrection is there for anybody who will go back and look at the historical evidence to see. Yeah. You don't need to have had the spiritual awakening to go look back and see the evidence. Anyone who can sit there and do the work of a historian can look back and see it. It's there for anyone to see. So, how
0: just how reliable is the Bible in his thinking about Revelation? Then,
2: yeah, it's it's very reliable in that it's a it's a historically reliable in that. So, the Bible may not always paint like every detail may not be what actually happened. So, he's very influenced by an Old Testament scholar uh, at his time um, at. Uh, at Heidelberg, by the name of Gerhard von Rad. Okay. Uh, now von Rad is an Old Testament scholar who kind of modifies a lot of the charismatic theology that's happening in Germany in the mid-20th century, uh, but very different from Bultmann. Uh, so von Rod would characterize like the biblical witness as it is the ancient Israelitic and the uh, primitive Christian kerygma, but that the kerygma is, act- is, is uh, actually anchored in historical events. So like, for example, von Rad, when we look at things like the miraculous uh, deliverance at the Red Sea. You know, kind of, now Von Rod does not use these words, but this is kind of a way that Von Rod might understand it. As historians, we don't know exactly what happened at the Red Sea, but we do know that Israel, what something happened that the people of Israel interpreted to be God's grandeur and magnificent deliverance from Egypt. Because it finds its way into the confessions of faith later in Deuteronomy and then into the Psalms, the Red Sea event finds its way. So they would say that while yes, in their ancient practice, they have maybe m- spun the events to be more grandeur than they may have actually happened. Mm-hmm. Something happened to cause the kerygma to arise. Yeah, and so Ponenberg would have a very sim- has a very similar view on that. He actually has an early essay called Kerygma in History, where he pays lots of homage to to von Rod in that essay about the idea that even though the biblical witness may not give us 100 percent accurate details, the kernel of it on which it's based is still there that we can therefore ascertain by doing like the task of higher criticism and stuff like that. And it's not an existential message, it's a historical message. Yeah. Um, so he would, a good way of explaining that is uh, Von Rod spends it in the first volume of his Old Testament theology that typically we today, when we're doing history or we tell history the way we do it in the twenty 20th and 21st centuries is that we focus on doing history in such a way that we focused on what can meet the criteria of the historical minimum. Whereas in the world of ancient Israel, they told history in such a way as to focus on a theological maxim. In other words, they told what happened, but they told it in such a way to make God look as glorious as possible. Hmm. So Pondimer would have that approach. So it's it's a preservation of the Kerygma which we use the tools of higher criticism and such to ascertain the historical events behind them.
0: So uh, I'm curious. I've seen some people say that Pannenberg's systematic theology is in, like the best one of the 20th century. And I just don't see the level of publicity around his stuff that I do other people. Do you have just, I don't know, off-the-cuff re- thoughts on why he's just not as popular a- as others?
2: He's hard. I mean, I mean, he's, I mean, he is, I mean, Ponenberg, I've heard people now, again, maybe I'm just weird in this. uh, I really love reading Ponenberg. I like his style of writing. It is erudite. It's very intellectual. It it can be tough to follow. But I've heard some people say that it's like reading a phone book, that it's just like reading a dictionary and encyclopedia. And I, I don't find it to be that way, personally. I really, really love it. Um. But first off, his, his systematic theology—it's it's three volumes, yeah. and in most of our Southern Baptist seminaries, we try to teach systematic in some. Uh, I don't know if Southern does it in three semesters, but I know at New Orleans we do it in two. Um,
1: same at Southeastern. And,
2: really? Same at Back Southeastern. Three. So, uh, brag about it. Why don't yeah, you? That's right. So, uh, <laughs> but no, so Punimer, I, and I will say this: most people when they come to do an MDiv at a seminary. Most of them. This is their introduction to systematic theology. Yeah. I would not throw volume one of Pontenberg's systematic at a first semester systematic one student for their MDiv. Yeah. Um, so that, that's one reason why. Um, again, the fact that he'll say no, the 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 text of the Bible is not God's word. Well, That's going to put a lot of us off. Yeah. Um, he says later, in at the end of volume two of his systematic theology that. Um, we can consider the New Testament, thus the Old Testament. We can consider them to be God's Word and inspired insofar that they bear accurate witness um, to the apostolic. They are an accurate preservation of the apostolic testimony uh, concerning Jesus. And insofar as that apostolic testimony concerning Jesus accurately preserves the the information about the historical Jesus. So pretty much insofar as that what the Bible presents is true and can be corroborated, we can view it as inspired. And you say the same for the Old Testament. Insofar as the Old Testament preserves the ancient Israelitic uh, testimony to God's actions in history, and insofar that that testimony bears an accurate witness to what God did, we can consider them inspired. But he was also, he believed that the studies of higher criticism had revealed several contradictions in the Bible—
1: Mm-hmm.
2: um, and stuff like that. So he, he didn't take that. So
1: th- this is not something that we talked about discussing. So if you're not prepared to answer this question, feel free to punt <laughs> it. Um, and, and I don't know where this came from. It just popped in my head, but I'm trying to think about, um, a theologian. So, so I'm, I'm trying to, so Carl Henry's popping in my head. They would have been mm-hmm. active during the, the same period. And mm-hmm. I was curious if, if they interacted any, um, cause i I'm, I'm trying to, maybe put a an actual evangelical theologian mm-hmm. rather than just talking about how evangelicals might have viewed his um but his theology. So d- did they interact at all? What did Henry think about <laughs> um Pannenberg? Do you have any insights on that?
2: Yeah. Henry does interact with him. I believe it's in volume two of his of his Magnum opus where he uh um where he deals with it doesn't spend a whole lot of time. Okay. Um, while he's, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I've read Henry. It's, it, this would have been fall 2014. Uh, if I remember correctly, Henry was sympathetic and he is favorable to the Ponnenberg's emphasis on history. But I mean, he was just very critical of Ponenberg's. Like, he's like, you're you rejecting the authority of scripture on this. He's yeah, not yeah. accepted this. So the, uh,
1: the response you'd expect, I guess. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> um,
2: I, again, I don't remember too much of it. I remember the impression. I do remember the impression reading Henry on it, thinking to myself, yeah, that's, that's a point of issue, but you could have also been more constructive with like, I'm one of those theologians that when I read people, like I disagree with like Bard or Schleiermacher. Yeah, I'm critical, but I'm always focused on what can I recover and what can I work with from this person? That's just my, that's how uh, my professors taught me to read people with charity and with grace. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, reading Henry on the subject and thinking, you could have been a little more charitable and you could have actually done more. Now mm-hmm. I will say this in Henry's defense, Henry wrote, I don't remember when he wrote his magnum. I don't remember the year, but he was dealing with a lot of Ponenberg's early work. Ponenberg's systematic is not written until the late eighties. I think it's when he begins and it's written into I uh, believe the German was completed right at 1990 or maybe 89. Uh, but it doesn't start coming into English until 1991. Hmm. Okay. So it's, it's, it's it's further down the line
0: yeah
2: yeah and i think and honestly in my opinion ponenberg actually sounds more conservative and more evangelical friendly in the first volume of his systematic than he does in his earlier work Mm -hmm. i don't think he changed his position but i think his articulations of his positions have matured a lot yeah and um in the such so that sounds more evangelical friendly uh But yeah, that view of Revelation as history actually comes into the second thing that I think he's very well known for, and that is eschatological ontology. And I'm going to explain what that means. Yeah, that's great. So again, (laughs) uh, so ontology is the study of philosophy that deals with being of what is, what makes things what it is, identity, it's a branch of metaphysics. Eschatology is the study, uh, Ponenberg would discuss it, It's it's the study or the critical reflection on the future kingdom of God. Um. So what? Pon- so to, to grossly oversummarize this, Ponnenberg believed that the eschaton, the future kingdom of God, that re- that is what determines and constitutes the identity of everything that exists. And now this is connected to his view of history. For Ponnenberg when I say that Revelation is history, uh, Ponnenberg talks of history is not yet what it is. History is still open. It is becoming what it will be. But it's what it will be that will then retroactively determine the meaning and identity of everything that existed therein. Uh, Ted Peters actually calls this retroactive ontology. And I think the best way to describe this is with an analogy of of narrative. So let's say you're reading uh, The Hobbit for the first time. And you're reading all of these events. You're reading... Uh, you have, you know, Bilbo has this encounter with with Smeagol. He has this encounter with the Dwarves, with with Smog. Well, well, who is Bilbo Baggins? He's he's the hero of the story, right? What makes Bilbo the hero? It's the end of the story. Yeah. No. But now here's the thing, though: what that story does, it doesn't just reveal that he was the hero all along. It's because the story comes out the way that it does, that retroactively determines and makes him the hero. It constitutes his identity. Mm-hmm. So Ponenberg has this idea that it is the end of history. When it comes to its close, at its climax, the eschaton, that will retroactively determine what everything else preceding it was. Uh, and he, he appropriates this um, well, like for Jesus, for example. The future. So what determined who this earthly Jesus was? What well, was what happened later in his life? It was his resurrection. Well, what's going to confirm the resurrection? Well, the eschaton will then confirm the resurrection further. Mm-hmm. That God, because history itself reveals God, history's so open, it's, the story's not done yet. But when it comes to its end, that will be the moment wherein God is revealed all in all. And everything else that's preceded will be not only come to light, but the actual identity of those things will finally be settled once and for all. Hmm. Uh, And he connects us to a theory of truth. He says that truth is not yet fully exists. He'll say that in order for a for a proposition to be true, it must be coherent with all other true propositions. Well, he'll say that since history doesn't exist yet, all true propositions don't exist yet. That is more being comes into existence. Therefore, more propositions are coming into existence. So therefore, Truth, to some extent, is somewhat shifting because mm. coherence, if it's not coherent, then it can't be true. And it's the final point of time, the final point of history, when everything becomes a closed system, that all of truth, all meaning, and all identity and being will finally be constituted. And the ways he appropriates this uh, for anthropology, Stanley Grins does some of this stuff, too, I think it's very devotional. Because the implication, I think what this means for identity. Well, what determines who Andrew Hollingsworth is? It's who Andrew Hollingsworth is in the future kingdom of God. So, in the in the words of Stanley Grins, "I am now who I will be then. Who I will be is determining who I am now." And when you think of that, as far as our future in you know the the eternal kingdom of God in presence of Christ, that that is what is retroactively constituting the meaning. of of every event we're walking through, the, the every moment of life, it's really, really interesting. A
1: lot of like I feel like I have a lot of questions, but I don't even know how to ask them. I, <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is
2: without doubt one of the most controversial points of Pannenberg's theology. Mm.
0: So, how how do things like this uh, from him ultimately serve the local church? So, say say I'm a pastor and I I live in like. Texas, like away from all the big cities or something, just kind of in the middle of nowhere. And I've got a church of 50 people. Mm -hmm. How is Wolfhart Ponenberg going to help me serve the members of my church?
2: Sure. Um, So I think one of that is Wolfhart Ponenberg really helps us fight uh, alive in a lot of different Christian traditions. Um, I, I, I say this as a Baptist that I think I find this mentality a lot in our Baptist tradition of anti intellectualism yeah Poenberg ain't got time for that. He just <laughs> doesn't. He's this idea of uh, this idea of blind faith he would he would bo- he, he would find bordering on the repugnant mm. um, and he would actually he actually has an essay where he says that actually reason precedes faith. He'll say the only he'll say things like the only the reason we put our faith in Christ and the truth of the gospel is because it's made sense to us at some level. Like we've heard the gospel and we're like, and at some point something clicks that says, that's not absurd. That makes sense. I can trust that. And and he kind of, he doesn't use it in these words, but it's a point that I've heard one of my former professors say is that our hearts will not accept what the mind rejects. And I think that's true. Like if someone hears the gospel or if they hear a message and they say, oh, that's absurd. They're Mm -hmm. not going to believe it. But there's something about the gospel that says, God loved me, became a man, he died for me, he loved me, I'm on board with that. And then as a result, there's faith. Now again, it's he rejects this idea, so he says that there's always, there's never a truly blind faith. And he talks about throughout the Bible, there's always lots of really good reasons um, for why we should be Christian. Ponenberg is one of the most apologetic theologians I've read. Reading his systematic theology, he's also a firm believer that the way that we really do theology, the way we begin, is that... We accept that God reveals himself in history. Well, there's all sorts of historical religions. You know, you've got Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism. He'll say, you're going to look at, we're going to look at all these religions and do our comparative religions, and we're going to see which ones have played out and actually been verified or falsified. We're going to look at this. And We're going to see which ones are still staying with the most internal coherence, the best explanations for reality, which he comes down as, once we get to the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection, uh, that is what marks it off as the most rational position.
1: I was going to ask you about his relationship to the reformed tradition and the Baptist tradition. So you already answered a little bit about the Baptist, some of the uh, Baptist figures that he influenced. Um, but did he interact with any reformed thinkers of his day or maybe earlier reform thinkers? Um, how, how does he fit into that, um, into that puzzle?
2: Yeah, so he's reformed in the sense that he's Protestant. Um he's not Catholic. Uh he interacts with Calvin a lot throughout his systematic. He interacts with other reformed thinkers. Uh I believe I remember seeing him interacting with Tyriton a good bit in his work. Um okay. but Ponenberg is a Lutheran.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: he, he's as reformed as Lutherans are, and in, and in, sure. to a lot of extent. Um so he's going now he's now he's also I'm hesitant to say he is reformed. He's, he's going to diverge from the reform traditions in several key points, such as the doctrine of election. He's going to, he, again, his view of a retroactive future is going to play a, a role in that to some extent, but he is also going to view election in more corporate terms of a, of a people yeah. in light of the calling of Israel and stuff. He is going to, uh, he does not accept the solace. I mean, like, like, you know, I, I, I really attracted to Kevin Van Hooser's book on, uh, a book on Babel and reading the uh, biblical authority and stuff in hermeneutics, where he talks about uh, how the five solas provide us with a mere Protestant reading of that. Now, Pannenberg, again, he's not, he's not going to say sola scriptura, and that's one of the things that made people hesitant about him. So he's reformed in that sense. Now, as far as the Baptist tradition, again, he's a Lutheran, so he's he's going to be very limited in the way he interacts with Baptists. But I was, I was rereading and studying uh, uh, yesterday and I was just really struck as I was reviewing his view of the Lord's Supper, I think his articulation of the Supper is actually something that Lutherans, the Reformed tradition, and uh, Baptistic traditions, or Zwinglian traditions, can actually come together on. Hmm. Um, So he actually talks about the Supper in a way that can facilitate these different positions all at once. Uh, The way he does that is And that makes him unique is that Ponenberg, he talks when he talks about essences and substances what makes something what it is he, with Aristotle and others, he affirms the existence of real relations that relations genuinely exist but for Aristotle uh, relations are accidental, they're not necessary so insofar that they they, uh, that's the word I'm looking for uh, influence or determine the identity of something, that's always an accidental thing. It's never essential. Ponenberg is actually going to reject that and say, no, there are numerous ways that what makes something what it is, is the relation itself, that relations can be essential properties or attributes. So as a result of that, he's going to say that the supper is a sign. First and foremost, it's a sign, and that it signifies something else. Now the supper, so therefore he's going to say the bread and the cup, these are signs. They signify something. Namely, they signify the future kingdom. They they signify the future table fellowship of the Lord, where all believers are gathered together at the table of the Lord, so to say. But what makes signs unique is that he talks about, now what happens is that signs embody. They have the ability and the capacity to embody that which they signify. So it's not that the bread, so therefore the sign of the bread and the cup embodies that future, uh, it embodies the union with Christ. It embodies that future eschatological fellowship. But what he'll say things, it's not so much the bread and the cup in and of themselves contain the substance of the Lord of this fellowship, but as a sign they do, the sign embodies that. And as we partake in the sign, we are sanctified that grace is imparted through that, but it's not this mystical magic sense that there's some mysterious way that Jesus is literally present in the bread and the cup. or so, it's a, so that can facilitate. So he'll say that since it's a sign, which a sign relates one thing to another, since that signifying relation constitutes the identity of what the sign is, then yes, it determines what the substance of that thing is because the relation itself is essential to that substance. So therefore, you can say, yes, that is consubstantiation, in that it is a sign of this, and it is also bread and wine. But also because of the signifying relation, it can facilitate the spiritual understandings of that. And then for us of a Zwinglian persuasion, it can also, I'll say, yes, i say us, I do tend to favor a more Calvin perspective, but he, he'll say, but for the Zwinglians, in that it's a sign that is signifying, it's causing us, it's pointing us, then yes, it's also this sort of memorial, and this is really important to it too. Well, how? what's the mechanisms that make the sign work to communicate grace to us in these ways? He, he talks about well, it's in amnesis and it's in uh, uh, the invocation of the Spirit. That is through this, because the supper forces us to remember the crucifixion of the Lord, it forces us to remember our baptism. And in so sort of that we do that, we are participating in that. And as we call, make the indication of the Spirit to effect these things in us, there is a spiritual real presence as well as a consubstantiation taking place mm-hmm. through this memorial sign. So his Lord, so his take on the Lord's Supper. I'm reading, i like, you know, this, this is really a way of articulating the doctrine that could actually find some some common ground amongst us. Yeah, um, are you going to write so a paper you, on that for us? Do what? Are you going to write a paper on that for us? I actually have an article it's not explaining the, the ecumenical implications of his doctrine of the supper, but I do have an article on uh, what I'm calling his semiotic doctrine of the church. Cause he says the church is a sign of the future kingdom. And I look at that and has that uh pertains to the supper as well. And I'm offering, he he operates with a particular model of the sign that I find insufficient. And I draw insights from the philosopher, Charles Sanders Peirce and his semiotic theory to say Here's what I should be more useful for Ponenberg's doctrine. Um, so I do have an article coming out in Neuzeit's script for Systematic Theology and Religions Philosophy. I don't know when it's coming out, but it's it's been accepted and it's in the queue. A hmm.
1: I, I, quick side note question. Do you know how he's viewed by – oh, I don't even know how they would identify themselves – confessional believing Lutherans today? I'm thinking of people like Jordan Cooper, like not nominal Lutherans. I mean that's a different – is he respected is he because i I know i mean i'm I'm assuming he's not like a classical theist or anything right so
2: so i don't know how he would be respected amongst confessional lutherans again i'm I'm not too familiar with literature written by a whole lot i know by there are several lutherans like Kristen largan and ted peters he's very well respected Ponenberg is a very big deal in germany they actually have an annual conference every year a symposium on his theology the all the papers presented get published together in volumes uh, Fenden Fendenhock and Rupert. He's respected a lot in Germany still. Uh, actually, his uh, successor, Gunther Vins, who took his spot at, at Munich, the chair that Ponenberg held was naturally ended up being named the Wolfhart Pinenberg Chair of Systematic Theology. Vins has hmm. since retired, and he's now at this other institution called, I think it's called the Munich School of Philosophy, and he has established there a Wolfhart Pinenberg Center for Ecumenical Studies. Hmm. And uh, he actually facilitates that that thing. So he's actually a really big deal still in Germany to where mm. chairs and conferences and schools are named from him. Um, I know Frederica a she's a a German Lutheran scholar who's been very influenced by Pondenberg. Um, but as far as a lot of the confessional, I know Ted, I know, I know more about Ted Peter's
1: work than I do. Okay. Yeah, right I was now. just curious. It, it, yeah, that was just something yeah. that popped into my head. So, as you know, we um, we do this podcast from a confessional Reformed Baptist, yeah, particular yeah. Baptist uh, perspective. So, um, knowing what you know about Pannenberg and what you know about uh, Reformed Baptist theology, what are what are some areas that that you would say are? And I know his view on special revelation we've already discussed, but outside of that, what are some areas that you think um, don't map on quite as well with uh, how we would uh, approach theology um, from a Second London? perspective.
2: Sure. Um, So again, his rejection of the scripture principle, um, we've talked a little bit about that. Uh, This is one that gets him in trouble, not just with Reformed Baptists, but with the Orthodoxy in general. Uh, He rejects the virgin birth. Mm. Um, Just on the basis of, again, this. I think this this is connected to his view of his use of higher criticism on studying the New Testament. He doesn't believe there is uh, adequate historical evidence of the virgin birth. And he says there's actually a doctrinal and a coherence problem with the virgin birth and the doctrine of the incarnation. Uh, And this is actually connected to the third point that gets him in trouble with orthodoxy, and that's his rejection of Chalcedonian Christology, or the Mm -hmm. idea of the two natures of Christ. So, But these two two things go together for him. With the virgin birth, he says, you know, there's just not historical evidence for this. This is based on his uh, use of form criticism and such, saying, well, we have the historical evidence using these tools of the, the resurrection, but not of the virgin birth. The virgin birth seems to have been a, a later addition to, as a way of explaining the incarnation, that it was at the, the birth of Jesus. The birth is when the incarnation happens. Well, Ponenberg doesn't accept that. He says, no, it's not the birth of Jesus that is the incarnation. It's the entire life of Jesus that is the incarnation. He says the resurrection of the dead, his teachings, the crucifixion, all of those are as much part of the incarnation. As the birth is, and he's not alone in this. Athanasius says very similar things in On the Incarnation. So this is this is not a real new teaching, yeah. but he's really trying to retrieve and record this idea of the totality of the life of Christ as the incarnation. Well, as a as a point of that, uh, he says that if it's not the birth that is the the sole marker of the incarnation, then it can't be his just assuming two natures, and so he tries to reinterpret these two natures in this dynamical sense that. He doesn't, he's not truly human until the resurrection. And but yet he's not truly who he claims to be as, as God in the resurrection. So he's not, he doesn't say that he doesn't become divine, he doesn't become human, but the totality of, of his divinity and the totality of his humanity are not present. Because if at any point he would have failed in his ministry, if he had not resurrected from the dead, well that right there would have meant he was not the son of God. He was not God in that moment. But that could not have been finally determined until the resurrection, wherein it is the Father validating and verifying all of the pre-Easter teachings and actions of Jesus. But at the same time, it's not until he is willing to die and go to the point of death on behalf of God's will that he has not become the true humanity. So it's, not a, it's, a to, it's the totality of the life. So he has this weird dynamic interpretation of what only in this sense can we understand the two natures. I don't think he's right on that, um, nor do I think he's right on the virgin birth. I think there's been numerous New Testament studies done now, especially the stuff that James Dunn and others have done with corporate memory that would establish the reliability of the virgin birth traditions. Um, and as a result, I think there's some some philosophical errors he may make, some logical errors in rejecting the two natures. Uh, so I'm not sold on his critiques of those, but those are. Uh, and- yeah, Go ahead.
1: And I'm right that he 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 would not be considered a a classical theist in that you know uh, in in the way we would understand it, right?
2: He he, well he's he he does he's not a cookie cutter one at that. He he rejects actually I don't really understand his view on time. I've read his stuff on time multiple multiple times, and I just have a hard time getting my finger on it. Uh, I actually have an article that involves that's been published that deals with his theory of time some. Because he has this idea that eternity is the totality of time. But the totality of time doesn't happen until the eschaton. But he'll say, so that God, so that since God is at eternity, God eternal, he is at eternity. He is at the eschaton retroactively working back on the rest of history. But then in his early writings, he has this stuff where he seems pretty clear the future doesn't exist. Hmm. So therefore, how does eternity exist? But yet he seems to... Ted Peters thinks that he makes a change where he comes to a more classical understanding of time and his later work is systematic. Robert John Russell doesn't think he changed, thinks he maintained consistency throughout his career. I've emailed uh, Bill Craig about this. Bill's not convinced that Ponenberg had a coherent theory of time.
0: I'm not convinced I mean, Bill Craig has a coherent theory of time. <laughs> I, since,
2: since, since he just wrote a chapter for my book, I'm not going to you know, say anything. Honestly, I find certain things about his theory of time very intriguing, but then I, I find myself, maybe it's just because I, I'm such a finite mind, but I scratch my head wondering. I don't, I don't think I'm connecting the point. I think we need to sit down over coffee and have you explain this to me better because I'm not. There's some points of where I, I don't follow. Yeah, uh, I'll, 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 I'll show myself as guilty and I'll show my cards. I tend to have I tend to have a lot more in common with like, with uh, Ryan Mullins on yeah, his uh, view of time as attribute than, than anything else.
0: And he's been on here and on record saying he has no idea what Bill Craig means.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, I've listened to that episode a couple of times. I really <laughs> like that. It's actually because of the London Lyceum. I've actually also begun listening to his. I didn't realize he had his own podcast. Uh, which then made me feel silly because then I realized I follow his podcast on Twitter <laughs> before that. Um, but so he's not classical in that sense. He will find he. I, I'm not quite able to pin down where he is on omniscience. I one of the areas of his doctrine of God that I was never been fully satisfied with. I wish he would have articulated the attribute stuff better. Okay. Um, but again, it's. But he's also not a. He's. I'll say he might. He might classify as a non-classical theist. But he is also very quick to to stiff arm and reject things such as process theism. You know, he has these early sayings early on in his, in his earlier, I was like theology in the Kingdom of God. It's a short little book that I usually recommend people start with. Um, but he he's famous because in that little book, he says things that because God's God's own deity cannot be separated from His rule and reign as King, mm-hmm. that that is essential to who God is. So he'll say that, for example, if God is not the, the king and the ruler of all creation, then he's not God.
1: Mm-hmm. That's actually kind of surprising, because it seems like with what you talked about, it seems like his theology would kind of be tailor-made for a process type theology. Well,
2: he's, but, that's, but he's not. He says that God is absolutely free in his choice to create. There is no contingent relationship on God. But then he'll say things like, now once God does choose to create— that mm-hmm. in a sense he makes his he makes his own being and identity contingent with creation because if he were to ever not reign over creation he would not be God but now because of who he is he's never not going to rule but that in a sense that if he never did then he wouldn't be so it's like this weird conditional that'll never be met that he introduces yeah it's like if a so if 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 not a then not b Never not A, therefore never not B. So it's like this weird condition. So it's one of those things that it's introduced. I'm like, okay, I don't know what the point of that was. But he wants to make this point because if history does not therefore climax in his kingdom, then he won't be God Yeah, because he would have not have had the power to control it and to bring it about. Hmm. But So therefore he kind of makes it contingent, but it's not contingent on it. But then he says these things like, but all the eschaton, the end of history, that will just prove God has always been who he is. So it's like this weird tension that he holds. Yeah. And it's not incoherent. I I think it's like I have this intuition that I can sense the coherence in it. I can see it. I just cannot articulate it. It and sounds
1: like it's just over my head. I don't know.
2: <laughs> it's very intriguing. I, it's one of the reasons why I think his theology just needs to be studied so much. And, yeah. Um, Oh, I forgot to mention this. You had asked me about some of the significant things he, he proposed. One of the most important ones that I'm probably most sympathetic to is his Christology from below approach. He has actually said that we cannot just begin by doing Christology by assuming the divine personhood of Jesus, that we must begin with the historical Jesus. And only when we arrive at his resurrection and ascension can we say, okay, he is the Son of God, and therefore we begin from there. Yeah. And it's actually, he does some basis for his doctrine of the Trinity in that. And he says that our doctrine of the Trinity begins in the historical figure of Jesus, namely in that we know that Jesus resurrected, yes, and declared to be the Son of God. But our doctrine begins in the in the human Jesus and that he prays to the Father as one distinct from himself. And that the, the idea of the filial relation, the sonship, fatherhood relation between him and God. Uh, is introduced there and it only in the new testament teaching grows out of that tr- out of that jesus tradition
1: I, I know we're running out of time so don't uh, i That's just fine. want to get this quick question and you made me think about sure. it when you talked about his doctrine of the trinity does he use traditional um creedal language to in, in his discussion of the trinity i mean or does he kind of go his own way
2: uh, he kind of goes his own way. He's very much more of this uh, in line with the the social view of the Trinity than he is the classical articulation. Okay. He doesn't find the language of begottenness very helpful <laughs> because uh, he seems to have this idea, and I think uh, I think William Lane Craig actually has a, a recent article on this where it talks about how this idea of eternal um, generation of eternal be- begetting there's there seems to be no coherent way to articulate that without introducing some form of hierarchy into the eternal hierarchy into the Godhead. Um, Ponderberg seems to have some similar suspicions. Ponderberg opts that the best way to describe the relation between the father and the son, the Trinity is the relation of love because love is necessarily, it is, a, it is itself a relation and it cannot exist if there is not a loving subject, a, an object of the love. And it's because of those two that there can be a relation in between that we call love. So, he, so Ponenberg will articulate it as the Father loves the Son, the Son reciprocates the love to the Father, and the Spirit is this love that binds and unites them. So, so therefore, it's going to say that God, since God is love, and that's the most fundamental aspect of His being, um, therefore, God is fundamentally a relation; He's a relational God. So, therefore, it kind of entries this social. He wouldn't call it that, but it's a it's a social view of the Trinity. So, he he, he uses some creedal language but he's also at times critical of creed. And he actually has a book on the apostles creed for today. Really? Um, Mm. It does. And he, he's not afraid to, he he critiques the virgin birth and things of the such in that book. Um, But he says that we can still confess them in, in this certain spirit of it, that we can maintain the spirit of the, of the creed in our confession. So we don't have to like throw, we don't have to cut it out or reject it. Yeah. That's interesting. Again, I don't agree with him on these things. Yeah.
0: No, Um, no, no, it makes sense. so, So, I think this has been really interesting and helpful. I I think there's a lot of pieces that you've kind of brought up and I'm like, wow, I want to talk about that or be interested in that. But I also know we're somewhat out of time. So before we close up, can maybe give me just quickly for people who want to follow your stuff, follow your work, where can they find you? Number one, and then give me your best like 30 second pitch on this new book that you have you're editing on him.
2: Sure. Uh, for following me, uh, I'm on. I guess Twitter's one of the main ways. Uh, my Twitter. Uh, what do they call it? Twitter handle. Yeah. It's uh, at J A Hollingsweird. Uh, that's. I have to give a shout out to Abby Todd for that. He one time he did this like just a handful of times, but he used to call me instead of Hollingsworth, he would call me Hollingsweird. Um, so I just kind of adopted that to, a, to a Twitter <laughs> handle. So at J A Hollingsweird, um, I have a website J A Hollings jandrewhollingsworth.com. I don't contribute to that as much as I need to. Uh, I'm trying to work on contributing more. Uh, I write blogs at a website I also run with a guy, Trinityhouse.org, uh, house is about H A U S.org. Uh, we try to break down some theological concepts for, for church people there on that website. And um, I've got some articles published but most of those are expensive so I won't won't bother <laughs> talking too much about those. That's one of my big critiques of like the peer review journal process. Uh, it's, 40, it's $42 for, a, for one article. Like, That's more expensive than most books cost. Yeah. Uh, as far as the new book coming out, it's an edited volume that I, again, I'm convinced we need to study Ponnenberg more. Mm-hmm. So I reached out to people who had studied under him before, uh, people who I knew had written and published on him. And I just said, hey, I have this idea of this project, this vision. Would you be willing to contribute? Um, just on essays, talking about Pontenberg's theology, be critical where we need to be critical, and but let's also focus on what can we recover and work constructively with to move forward in our theological endeavors. Um, We've got a really, really stellar lineup. Frederica Noesel, again, she's a real big name theologian in Germany. She's, she's writing the foreword for the book. Uh, Katrin Gildon lemaire uh, Th- Ted Wapham out at University of Dallas, myself, William Lane Craig, Fred Sanders, Ted Peters, Robert John Russell, Roger Olson, um, Kristen Largan, Page Brooks and uh, the afterwards being written by Valianti Carcanan. I feel like I'm leaving somebody out. I really hope I'm not. If if I've forgotten you, I promise you it's not because you're not important. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think it's gonna be a great volume. It's coming out with Fortress Academic slash Lexington Books. I'm not sure when it's coming out, uh, but it's officially in the uh, the publisher's hands. That's awesome, And, uh, and I hope hope people will be able to read it and find an appreciation for Ponenberg and realize just because some of us like and write on him a lot doesn't mean that we accept everything, but that we can be critical and still be constructive at the same time.
0: Oh, that's awesome. You know, I, I love finding figures in history who have had powerful intellects that you can really wrestle with and think with. Uh, mm-hmm. He seems like one of those type of guys that is worthy of wrestling with and helping you think through your own. Uh, thoughts on things. So we want to thank you for coming on the show, talking with us, uh, all things vonnenberg um, We recommend our listeners go find that book when it comes out. Um, go check out uh, Andrew's website and I'm sure it will in his Twitter, he'll let you know when it's coming out and everything, but we'll also uh, remind you when it does come out as well. And uh, we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the London Lyceum because uh, we're the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet And we'll talk to you guys soon.
1: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.